coming this evening to uh, philosophy at LSE, and hopefully this is about philosophy for everyone. Uh, we've got Professor Nancy Cartwright, who splits her time between here and California. Um, I'm not going to go over her biographical detail, but suffice to say that she's a, uh, a recent past president of the Philosophy of uh, Science Association, and in her address to them, uh, she mentioned or concluded that if we, you know, the philosophers, don't step forth to act to improve the decisions that influence all of our lives, what is philosophy good for? Uh, and true to her, she's stepping forward in front of non-philosophers today and we're going to learn uh, how philosophy can contribute to evidence-based policy and that really does affect us all. So I'll hand it over. Thanks, now let's see if I can figure out, remember how I'm supposed to get my slides here. Is it escape? Yes. And then go to the bottom. Okay, and then, and then go to F5. Um, so um, there's a sort of new title, um, the long road from it works somewhere till, uh, to it will work here. And I will explain to you uh, the point of these two terms. I want to begin with a story about the Bangladesh Integrated Nutrition Program because it's a good exemplar for the kinds of issues that I want to discuss. Um, the Bangladesh Integrated Nutrition Program, uh, where Bangladesh is here, it was modeled on a successful program in Tamil Nadu um, a few years earlier. Um, and. Uh, um, both air, both places um, had a great deal, deal a, a large rural population, um, a great deal of poverty, and um, a great deal of child malnutrition. And we know that child malnutrition is um, leads children to have uh, to be ill, and uh, and many of them die um, from the from the illnesses. And the uh, program in Tamil Nadu, I'm going to give up a kind of shortened version of it. Um, but one of the things that the uh, World Bank had noticed was that, um, and, and, also, and others, is that there seemed not to be the right kind of correlation between um, being lacking in resources and child uh, malnutrition. That, um, so they thought that the resources available could be put to better use. They believed that um, there were mistakes uh, that mothers were making about uh, childhood nutrition. Uh, some of them depended on uh, beliefs in eating down during pregnancy, um, which might be a sensible thing to do to make the delivery easier. Um, there were also uh, prohibitions against um, eating certain kinds of foods which are in fact uh, good for the mother and for the child, prohibitions against infants eating foods. So the idea, right there wrong, the idea was that um, counseling mothers uh, about nutrition uh, would lead to much better nutrition in infants. It was also um, accompanied by a supplemental feeding program. Um, okay, and uh, the program was instituted in Tamil Nadu, and um, there's good evidence, uh, 
now slightly controversial, but there's good evidence that it worked there. Um, there were a lot of programs, so it's hard to sort out which program was doing which bit, but there's pretty good evidence that this um, nutritional, um, the integrated nutritional program that involved nutritional education for mothers was really uh, contributing, uh, and contributing a, a, a reasonable amount to the improvement in child nutrition. Um, and then it was uh, tried out in Bangladesh, and after <coughs> still a great many years, um, it didn't seem to work at all. And a lot of money and hope was wasted. So part of the question is, uh, what went wrong? And in particular, what went wrong given that, um, that it was really very well evidenced that the program, um, as people say, worked. Because it really was, the evidence was really pretty powerful that it worked in uh, Tamil Nadu. Okay. Now, there is, um, when I say the program worked, there's now um, really active and uh, growing and uh, hugely uh, becoming very influential movement in development economics. Um, which is a movement to argue uh, that you should only spend development money, aid, or aid money on programs that work, and that um, subsidiarily the best way to show that something works is to uh, run a randomized control trial. Now, there wasn't a randomized control trial in Tamil Nadu, but there was, one might think, um, the next best thing of rather solid comparative evidence uh, about what was happening there. You know, a randomized control trial is where you give half the population the treatment and you withhold, or the policy, you withhold it from the other half. You, uh, you assign randomly whether somebody's got, one village is going to get the treatment or one mother's going to get the treatment, um, so that your assumption <coughs> is that the groups, who, the, the people, the group, the population that gets the treatment and the population that doesn't are the same with respect to all the other important variables that might be affecting the outcome. And then you look to see if you've got more, um, the higher uh, value for the result in the treatment group than the control group. That's what a, that's what a medical trial is like. And these development economists are very, very keen on um, doing randomized controlled trials on development and aid programs and development policies to see whether or not they really work. Do they really work? We can find out for sure with an RCT. Only use programs that work. Okay. So that's the, 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 the story. You know, here we have um, one of the, uh, Esther Duflo is a very good um, and active uh, proponent of this. She's an MIT economist. Um, the past few years have seen a veritable explosion of randomized experiments in development economics, creating a culture in which rigorous randomized evaluations are promoted, encouraged, and financed has the potential to revolutionize social policy during the 21st century. Okay, so that's uh, Esther Duflo on uh, you know, using policies that work, whereby that means she means policies that have been shown to work in randomized control trials. And failing a randomized control trial, the next best thing. Okay. Now, uh, here's a picture of Esther Duflo and another colleague of hers, uh, Banerjee, who's uh, also uh, very keen on randomized control trials. Um, they're part of the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, JPAL. Um, and 
Um, this is another MIT economist who's very keen on randomized control trials and development economics. And there's our own Steve Pischke, um, who uh, also is keen on randomized control trials and development economics. Um, okay. And um, this is a quote from a paper by Pischke and Angrist. Um, in, uh, in, case, uh, in, in, a, in a paper in defense of randomized control trials in development economics. And what I want to note about this is um, the idea is, you see, you do this trial in Tamil Nadu, and then you extrapolate it right, to Bangladesh. Right? Um, and um, here is a, a, a case uh, of serious extrapolation that they remark on. In a pioneering effort to improve child welfare, the Progressive Program in Mexico offered cash transfers to randomly selected mothers, contingent on participation in prenatal care and the children's regular school attendance. Progressive is why now 30 countries worldwide have conditional cash transfer programs. Now that's serious extrapolation from the program tested in Mexico to 30 other countries. Okay. Now here's one that's even bigger, deworm the world. So we did some uh, randomized controlled trials in a few places um, and found that uh, deworming children improved lots of things, like, but in particular improved school attendance and subsidiarily school results. And there is now deworm the world. That's massive extrapolation. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> now, um, what the, the philosophical point that I want to start with in this discussion is that um, it works is loose talk and um, I, I rather like to invoke the uh, World War II uh, warning loose talk kills and as philosophers uh, we're really trained uh, to beware of loose talk and to try and tighten it up and um, I think that we, this is what's really needed uh, in this discussion of uh, policies that work. Um, so I want to start by simple, not really heavy, these, you, these aren't distinctions you find in the philosophic literature. These are distinctions I find matter to this discussion. So three kinds of causal claims. The first is an it works somewhere claims. The policy produces the outcome somewhere. For example, in that study population there in Tamil Nadu or where the deworming program was tested, or in two Zambian hospitals that I, we just in my uh, um, course a few minutes ago heard Hawkins Second Elgin talking about some studies on um, uh, prophylactic use of antibiotics in children uh, in Africa to um, maintain their health until they get old enough to take uh, HIV AIDS positive children, until they get old enough to um, to uh, take retrovirals, um, and these were done in two Zambian hospitals, um, and the trials were thought to be relatively well conducted, so we knew that it worked somewhere, and it worked there in that study population. That's a very different claim than um, a general claim. The policy produces the outcome widely. I call these general claims or Roman claims. You'll see me see why I use that term later on. Okay, um, that, so to say it works somewhere is very different from, and to establish that it works somewhere uh, is very different from saying and establishing that the program produces the outcome widely, and that's different again from saying it will work here. Um, the policy will produce the outcome here in Bangladesh um, or deworming kids in Birmingham is going to improve their reading scores. 
now, um, it, the fairly obvious claim that these, sorry, that these three, these three kinds of claims are distinct. Um, and it might seem trivial to, to, and I'm making much ado about nothing, but look here. Um, Duflo and Kramer, in a well-known paper, Use of Randomization and the Evaluation of Development Economics, um, they have, they say this, and this is, I think, in the second paragraph of the paper. Okay. Um, I, uh, and I wasn't uh, cherry-picking, I didn't actually have to hunt far to find this because this is typical. This kind. But in, in this one sentence, in the second paragraph of the paper, they conflate all three senses. The benefits of knowing which programs work extend far beyond any program or agency, and credible impact evaluations can offer reliable guidance to international organizations, governments, donors, and NGOs beyond national borders. So let's look here. Which programs work seems to me the benefit of knowing which programs work, that sounds very much like a claim about it works in general or it works widely. Which programs work? Well, I mean, that sounds like work widely, okay? Um, but impact evaluation, I mean, that's to evaluate the impact that a program actually put in place had. So that's, it works somewhere. And then finally, reliable guidance to international organizations and government donors sounds very much like claims about it will work here. Okay. So in one, uh, in, in, despite the fact that loose talk kills and uh, these are clearly distinct kinds of causal claims, um, they <coughs> tend to get run together um, in, um, in, in, in the discourse. Okay. So my, um, what I'd like to uh, argue uh, is that um, RCTs and finding out that it works somewhere is all fine. It's good. It's a, it can be a very good starting point uh, for thinking about uh, policies here. But it's a long and torturous road from it works somewhere to it will work here. Um, and uh, what I want to explain this evening is I think um, that there are two essentials for building this road from it works somewhere uh, to it will work here. And now you see Roman laws. And it came to pass in those days that there went out from a uh, decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That's why I call them Roman laws. Now, um, just as Roman laws, um, <laughs> the laws <laughs> that we're going to talk about in these uh, cases um, don't have to be universal. I mean, in fact, all the world wasn't taxed. Um, but um, the laws that are at stake in our discussion need to be wide enough they don't have to be universal, but they certainly need to be wide enough to cover the study setting. Right? So you're going to do a study, and you're going to learn something in the study. Um, you're going to actually, what I'm going to point out is you learn something about the causal laws that are operating in the study setting. So the the the, the laws involved have to be big enough to cover the study setting and the target setting. And if they're not wide enough to do that for you, you you you've lost the game. So you need Roman laws, and then you need the support team. Uh, that calls them into play. So um, you need all those factors without which the policy cannot act. So I'm going to talk about these two, the Roman laws and the support team. Okay, um, okay so RCTs, but other kinds of studies like them, um, they tell you that the policy plays a causal role in producing the outcome under the causal laws that hold in the study situation. And if you know, if we wanted to be technical, we could write down some form for the causal law 
and um, we could show you how um, it if you get a how if you get a positive effect size in the study that actually shows that the treatment variable appears in the causal law. That's a piece of technical stuff we could do. Okay? But what, so what the, um, so, so there's even, I mean, this isn't just an obvious point that, the, that, the, that a successful, well-done RCT shows you that the policy plays a causal role in producing the outcome. Well, it plays a causal role in producing the outcome, obviously, under the causal laws that obtain in the study situation. Um, but you, I mean, there's actually, you can cash all this out technically. Um, so the policy then, if that's what the RCT shows you, the policy won't work in the target setting unless the study and the target share these laws. So it's no good learning that, um, the, uh, that you're allowed to, um, oh, sorry, I forgot my example. Um, there are all sorts of things you're allowed to do under British law that you're forbidden under American law. Right? It's no good learning that you're allowed to do it under British law if you're moving to America. Right? Okay, so um, the policy won't work in the target setting unless the study and the target share these laws. And then secondly, the study situation has all the supporting factors necessary for the policy to play its causal role there. So we want to talk about support factors. So support factors. Okay. Um, just an example. Um, homework. Uh, this I take from uh, an educationalist, Harris Cooper, who spent a lot of time working on homework. Um, homework can produce higher test scores. Um, I could tell you a long story, but um, I'm going to you know, sort of do a caricature of it. Um, but homework cannot produce higher test scores without support. So here we have uh, from Cooper um, a, a conglomerate of factors all of which have to be in place if homework is going to produce much of an effect. Um, of course, it's not a yes-no, uh, so it, uh, it, it's a, 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 a bit caricature. Uh, but if you want to get the expected level um, of effect out of homework, um, it's not enough that you just assign homework. Uh, the students have to be motivated. The students have to be able enough. There has to be study space, okay. supportive family environment, there has to be a consistent lesson, work feedback. Um, I talked about this in my um, philosophy of social science course last year at UCSD, and I asked the students um, in, in the course to, uh, to fill in a, a, I call this a, a, the epidemiologists call this a pie. I tend to call it a cake, uh, because the thing about pie is if you take a slice out of a pie, you still have a lot of pie left. But if you take a central ingredient out of a cake, like the baking powder, right? you don't have a cake at all. And that's the point, is that these factors are all necessary to get just the effect that, uh, that, you, that you want. Um, so I asked the students to start filling them in, and well, the one they were really keen on was this one, work feedback. <laughs> and I was very glad. We were all very good in our, our department at giving work feedback. Okay, but so all these are necessary um, to, um, to get um, homework to have the expected result. Other conditions than homework are necessary to ensure that homework is really effective. So even if you have um, a population that's governed by a causal law that said that you know, homework uh, can uh, improve um, reading scores, say. Um, reading scores are kind of a bad example. Homework can improve your history scores. Um, then um, it, it, it's not the homework by itself you need the whole support team or it doesn't work. 
So, um, okay, so that was that what you want are shared causal laws, and you want to ensure if it's no good assigning homework, says Harris Cooper, um, if the students get no, I should maybe back up. It's no good assigning homework if the students are totally unmotivated or they don't have any study space. Do something else for them, but don't assign homework. Okay? Um, so you need uh, to have the support factors in place. And you, you need to have if the, um, if the study population is going to be any indication to you of whether your policy, that your policy will work here, you need to have shared causal laws between the two. So let's think about the shared causal laws. Um, there are problems with shared causal laws. Okay. Um, two problems I want to point out. Um, fragility. Many causal laws break readily, and they break readily when you try to use them. And the second one is locality. Many causal laws hold only locally. So fragility. It's easy to break a causal principle. So here's one of my favorite toys as a child, and one of my terrible, frustrating experiences is um, that well, here's a, there, there's a causal principle. Winding up the toy soldier causes him to march, except if you don't you wind it too tightly, and then you just break the whole mechanism. Okay. So my very attempt, my very attempt to exploit this little causal principle to get the toy soldier to march, um, actually broke the causal principle. So I wind him up to get him to go, and uh, broke the, princ the principle. So um, okay. So now. Um, that's a story from my childhood, and I think one you're all familiar with. Um, this has been a, a major concern in economics. Um, and here's Robert Lucas, a famous uh, Chicago school economist, a Nobel Prize winner, um, anti-interventionist. He, he, along with much of the Chicago school, is, um, has argued strongly um, for um, that the governments in general should not intervene. Um, and the reason is, um, he says, um, that attempts to use established causal principles to intervene are likely to fail. So you, you, you observe a regularity uh, uh, and you observe a cause-effect relation that's holding in your situation over um, the last couple years, and you think, okay, now I'm going to manipulate the cause in order to bring about the effect. Um, one of the Lucas examples is was the Phillips curve, which is the trade-off between inflation and unemployment, and it seemed uh, to be <coughs> a, a relatively stable trade-off, and moreover, um, rising um, inflation Rising inflation levels tend, did tend to bring down um, unemployment levels. Okay. Um, but what, uh, what Lucas argued is that as soon as the government tries to manipulate inflation levels to control inflation, they break the causal principle itself. Right. So that what he argued was that um, the interventions are likely to destroy their, the, the very causal regularities that you're hoping will hold in order to get what you want from them. Because what they do, says Lucas, is they change the underlying structure of behaviors that's giving rise to that, regu that regularity in the first place. So as long as things are happening naturally and um, inflation levels or unemployment levels are changing by un external unexpected shocks, it is indeed the case that there's this trade-off 
and when one goes down, it can cause the other to go up, and vice versa. Okay, so it, that that's what. There's also some story that this wasn't as true as people thought it was, but um, let's let's stick with this version of the story. Um, so that was perfectly good uh, causal story, um, but uh, when the government wants to control infl inflation, to uh, manipulate inflation to control unemployment, uh, what happens is that um, the change in inflation is now expected, and it's understood as a change in inflation, and people respond differently to price rises that they know are just inflation uh, brought about by the government than they do to price rises that were occurring naturally and they didn't know were just just inflation. So the idea is that when the government's intervening, it breaks the very causal principle that you're relying on. Okay. Now, whether you believe Lucas or not, about uh, these particular uh, his particular story and how this happens very regularly and you shouldn't intervene, um, and in particular whether you believe the actual economic models he produced to show, we didn't just tell the story that I told, he produced uh, mathematical models to back it up. Whether or not you believe those, you can see that this is a live possibility and that is going to happen uh, fairly often. Though maybe, you know, it might not always be that it happens when the government wants to intervene to make things better. Okay. So, um, that's the story about fragility of causal laws. Um, now, locality. Um, I, uh, you may all know, I late to, uh, I don't like emails, um, I like talking on the telephone, and I really like uh, writing with a pencil. Um, so, and I like writing with sharp pencils, I have the wooden pencils, and I sharpen them a lot. And I have um, a really neat way um, to sharpen pencils at my house. Um, I sharpen pencils by flying a kite. And that's because this is what my study looks like. Okay. <laughs> so, um, this is a Rube Goldberg machine. We're flying the kite. You see this pulley. Another pulley, it raises um, the little gate, and there are moths inside the cage, and the moths come out, and they eat some flannel, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth, and eventually there's the knife that sharpens my pencil. Okay. Uh, Heath Robinson uh, did uh, similar kinds of machines in the, in, in the UK. Um, so uh, this is, I, this is, this is you know, my study. And flying kites sharpens pencils in my study. And there is no doubt about that causal principle. Um, and if you do an RCT on a particular, I want to tell you I don't have any sharp knives. And I don't have any other kind of pencil sharpeners. So actually, um, and I only bothered to put the kite out on a windy day. So putting the kite out the window, I always get a sharpened pencil. But say you decide to do an RCT on me, you know, you're going to take days, you're going to randomly assign them, you're going to say, you know, um, on the, the day you're going to flip a coin, if heads comes up, you fly the kite, if tails comes up, you don't. Okay? So, uh, you know what's going to happen? You're definitely going to get a very big positive effect size, because you're not going to get any sharpened pencils on days you don't put the kite out, and on days you do, you will get a sharpened pencil any time the wind is blowing. So this causal principle is very, you know, it's, it, it, it's very well attested. On the other hand, I would advise you to fly a kite to sharpen your pencils. 
This is a very local causal principle. Okay. Now, so let's think about um, locality uh, a, a little more uh, generally. Um, what is it? Um, what is it that went wrong in Bangladesh? I'm swooping through, you know, we're going to have a lot of time for conversation. <laughs> uh, what went wrong in Bangladesh? Well, um, in Bangladesh, the, there, there was a causal principle that I think the, um, the, the, the integrated nutrition program relied on. And, and that very causal principle that the, it's called BIMP, the BIDIP. Right, the bit of the Bangladesh Integrated Nutrition Program, the very causal principle that it relied on, which is a, a principle that had been shown to hold in Tamil Nadu, okay, didn't reach all the way to Bangladesh. It was not anything like a Roman law. Okay, so there were two problems um, in Bangladesh. Men? <laughs> well... I know my colleague, when we, we were writing this in our little pamphlet on evidence-based policy, and he's changed my complaint about men to male shoppers. <laughs> but it's male shoppers and mothers-in-law. <laughs> so that's what went wrong in Bangladesh. So let me tell you uh, a little more of the story in Bangladesh. Here's Howard White. Howard White um, was one of the people uh, who was responsible for the post-hoc analysis, the evaluation, the post-hoc evaluation of why the integrated nutrition program didn't work in Bangladesh. And Howard says, the program targeted the mothers of young children. You know, that's what they did in Tamil Nadu that worked so well. But mothers are frequently not the decision makers, and rarely the sole decision makers with respect to the health and nutrition of their children. Also, women do not go to market in rural Bangladesh. It's men who do the shopping. And for women in joint households, meaning they live with their mother-in-law, as a sizable minority do, then the mother-in-law heads the women's domain. Indeed, project participation rates, I mean, just as a side to back this up, even the project participation rates were lower for women living with their mothers-in-law than um, in the more conservative parts of the country. So that's Howard White's analysis of what went wrong in Bangladesh. So I think what we were see seeing here is a real case of Roman versus local laws. So there was a false supposition going into the BIDIP, the Bangladesh Integrated <laughs> Nutrition Program. The supposition was that Bangladesh shares a certain causal principle with Tamil Nadu. And here's the causal principle. It looked. I mean, I don't know that anybody wrote this causal principle down, but they very clearly were assuming uh, something like this, that um, causal principle, better nutritional knowledge in mothers improves the nutrition of their children. Well, that turns out to be a local law. It held in the Indian sites, but not in the Bangladeshi sites. So, um, interestingly, though, um, had one um, understood more about why the principle was working and more about the local situations in Tamil Nadu and in Bangladesh, I think that you might have come up with a different causal principle to rely on than this one. I mean, this one is uh, local 
and it simply didn't hold in Bangladesh, even though we we think it held in Hamil Nadu. Um, but as a matter of fact, I mean, one of the things uh, that's well, I'll come back to this. But if you if you now after the fact begin to reflect about what went wrong and understand the situation in the two places, um, you can actually get a better shared principle. Uh, a principle that's much more likely to be shared between Tamil Nadu and Bangladesh, and it's something like this. Better nutritional knowledge results in better child nutrition if you provide the nutritional knowledge to uh, those who control what food is procured, control how food gets dispensed, and hold the child's interests as central in performing one and two. This is a much higher level, more abstract uh, principle, and it holds more widely. Um, we might, may suppose, uh, we have reason to suppose that this causal principle holds both in Bangladesh and in Tamil Nadu. Um, it's just that in, um, in this more abstract description uh, is true of mothers in Tamil <laughs> Nadu, uh, but it's not true of mothers in Bangladesh. Because in Bangladesh, the mother-in-law controls what food is. Oh no, the, the, the male, the older brother, and the, uh, the husband uh, control what food is procured. The mother-in-law controls how the food gets dispensed, and it's not clear um, that uh, the mother-in-law holds this child's interest as uh, paramount in performing one and two, whereas it is assumed that the mother, um, the, the mother does. So, um, so this principle. I mean, there's a nice. There's a happy side to the failure story. Um, and this is often the case, that if you, um, that sometimes, um, it's, not, it's not an accident that it worked in Tamil Nadu. I think there probably is something somewhat generalizable. Hawkins was, uh, Hawkins second Elgin was talking about generalizability um, and the demand for generalizability. I think that there, are, and I would argue, um, and give you examples on other occasions, but that there can be purely local causal laws like the one in my um, uh, study. Um, but there can be ones that are more gen generalizable. Uh, it happens, though, that what we've seen here is characteristic. That usually, to get a causal principle that holds fairly generally, it's going to involve very abstract concepts. So you, in order to get something that holds you know, more widely, you usually have to climb up a ladder of abstraction. You have to get to something more, more abstract. And that, of course, means uh, it's a bit more, life is very much more complicated because you have to know when you do a study and you want to export the study result, even if it does export in some way or another, you have to know what the right concepts are in which to describe your study results. You have to know whether to describe it as mothers or people who control food, buying the food and dispensing it. Um, and then when you get to Bangladesh, right, if you've got this abstract description, you have to figure out who satisfies these descriptions in the new setting. So um, the, um, the failures of study results to export uh, shouldn't always bring you to despair. Uh, sometimes they will export if you move up the ladder of abstraction, uh, but it does give you uh, a lot more problem uh, than you originally uh, envisaged, because, or the Duflo and Kramer originally envisaged, because they very, very seldom talk about how you describe the treatments and the programs. Um, 
And that is an absolutely essential uh, a bit of science that has to go on um, before you can um, traverse the long road from it works somewhere till it will work here. Okay, so um, conclusions. I've already reached my conclusions. Uh, the first uh, <laughs> conclusion is RCTs may be gold standard for establishing it works somewhere. This is the sort of standard uh, mantra now uh, for a long time in evidence-based policy and evidence-based medicine that if you want to establish it works where what they really, all they can really establish is it works somewhere. If you really want to establish that, you should do a randomized controlled trial. Now, um, and it's called uh, gold standard evidence. Um, there are lots of other ways of establishing it works somewhere. Uh, for instance, uh, provably, uh, if, you do, if you have the right kind of background information to do an instrumental variable analysis and econometrics, uh, you can show that um, you, it, you can show that you can derive causal conclusions, and you can do it with just as much certainty as you can in an RCT. Uh, you know, I told you there was a little formal proof that I could do for the RCT to show that um, if you really got a positive result in the RCT, you knew your policy uh, would play a role in the causal law that's governing the outcomes there. Well, you can do exactly the same thing uh, with instrumental variables in, um, uh, in econometrics. Um, you can also, uh, Dr. Fennell, who's uh, worked on these issues, uh, can give you a set of conditions for taking ordinary econometric models um, and under what kind of conditions they could be interpreted correctly, causally. Um, so um, RCTs aren't the only way to really nail down at work somewhere. They're, I think they're gold standard because these other methods, and I just mentioned two, I mean, I, um, my first half of my career was in physics and philosophy of physics, and you know, there's tons of things we know uh, pretty well that works somewhere, and I never saw an RCT in, in physics. Um, and I think the reason is because there's a, a very strong body of background knowledge one can rely on to bootstrap to new knowledge. Um, what's going on in an RCT is that um, you, you try to minimize the amount of background knowledge you have to import. So that's why it's gold standard. It's, it's, the, it's a way of establishing it works somewhere if you pretend you don't know anything at all. Okay. Uh, to use uh, Damien's methods or instrumental variables methods, um, you have to know something already. You have to know quite a lot about the causal background. You don't have to know what you're trying to find out, but you have to know a lot of other facts, uh, causal facts. So um, there's a, a slogan that I've always used called, no causes in, no causes out that if you don't have any causal knowledge to start with, it's going to be very, very hard to get new causal knowledge. Um, but with the right kind of background causal knowledge, you can bootstrap to new. So um, RCTs may be gold standard for establishing it work somewhere. I mean, it depends on what you know. And if you know very little, then I think RCTs are a gold standard. They, if they're just perfectly done um, and all the conditions for them are right, and the, the, studies, the, the study population is large enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If everything goes perfectly, it's a good way to nail down that it works somewhere. Um, and moreover, if you don't know anything about what any of the other causal factors involved might be, it's, it's, it's probably the method of choice. Okay. Because the other ones all demand that you have more richer background causal knowledge. So conclusion was RCTs may be gold standard for establishing it works somewhere. Um, so now we're on the road to it works here. 
So I think that they can provide a very solid departure point. Okay. Um, okay. But you can't pave the wrong road to it works here with these gold bricks. Uh, so that's the first uh, uh, line of conclusion. Um, the second is that um, to get, which is what I uh, explained to you, uh, to get from there to here, I mean, supposing that you know um, the policy works somewhere, it works over there in that study population, if you want to get from it works there to it works here, uh, then you need Roman laws, or Roman enough laws, okay, and you need the right support team to be in place in your situation. Um, so, for instance, in the Bangladesh Integrated Nutrition Program, people did think about the support team. Um, and they also did, had done in the Tamil Nadu, because um, you, you mean it's, it's pretty obvious, it's not a difficult thing uh, to think about uh, some of the factors in the support team. It's no good counts, it's no good us knowing um, what to feed our children if we simply do not have the resources to supply the food. So um, a helping factor uh, for the, um, the educational program to work um, is uh, um, having enough uh, resources to, to, to get the food that's the, the, that you're supposed to be, uh, you know, you've decided is good for the children. Um, and so they supplemented in both Tamil Nadu and in Bangladesh, there was a supplemental feeding program. So that... Um, that's a support factor. <laughs> it wasn't going to work. Uh, knowing what to feed them wasn't going to work if you didn't have the food. Uh, and that was obvious, and that was taken into account in, in both places. Interestingly, I know I told you about the, the issue about abstraction. Um, I didn't tell you about the other reason that the, there was male men and mothers-in-law. There's another reason that the Bangladesh program didn't work as well as the Tamil Nadu. And it's, uh, again, you can think of it in terms of abstraction. It's that supplemental feeding, which was given to the children in Tamil Nadu, I mean, supplemental feeding, sorry, which was handed out, right? supplemental food was handed out, um, that, um, that happened both in Tamil Nadu and in Bangladesh. But in Tamil Nadu, more often, the food handed out, the supplemental food supplied, actually turned into supplemental food consumed. So, um, the, uh, but in Bangladesh, the supplemental food handed out tended not to be consumed by the child. It was taken home and given to another member of the family. Or sometimes it was not supplemental, but it was used to replace a meal that the child otherwise would have had. So even though they thought about the support factors, uh, um, they didn't think about whether or not uh, this abstract description they had, well, ha food handed out, right, whether it was actually going to come under the right concrete description, food that actually gets into the belly of the child uh, in the two places. Okay. So um, they did think about uh, the right support team um, at one level um, uh, by you know, having this extra food available, um, but even in that case, they didn't think about uh, what on the ground that amounted to. So at any rate, to get from there to here, you need Roman laws and the right support team. And then um, the good thing about this is that once you know those are the that's what you need, um, you can actually hunt for it. Um, the 
I mean, the reason that I want to give this kind of a lecture is to say, <laughs> look, it's not good enough to um, learn that Progressive worked in Mexico. It's, it's not good enough to, to know that Cotrimax uh, choke, this prophylactic antibiotic uh, that I can never pronounce, uh, worked in two Zambian hospitals, uh, <coughs> populations in two Zambian hospitals. Um, it, you need to know that the laws uh, under which it worked are spread widely enough to reach you and that you have the right support team. The thing is, once you know that you need the, those additional pieces of information, you can hunt for them. Um, and often, you can find them. So here's Howard White again. In the Bangladesh case, identification of them, you find them, you find them in funny places. You don't find them by doing an RCT. You find them by, um, among other things, doing some proper science to end up with the right abstract concepts and having a great deal of local knowledge to know what those abstract concepts amount to in the new setting, um, if there is something generalizable. So here's Howard White again. In the Bangladesh case, identification of the mother-in-law effect came from reading anthropological literature. Uh, this insight led us to unpack the household roster section of the questionnaire to, to identify those women living with their mothers-in-law. Okay, so then that, that's how they were able to back up their claims that the mothers-in-law were um, having this ill effect. So um, the point is, though, that uh, you may not be encouraged to look for these additional pieces of information because of the idolatry of method, uh, because we've got the idea that um, you should only use policies that work, and the way to tell whether they work is to do a randomized controlled trial. Okay. So conclusion, last page of conclusion, is getting policy right is really hard. And you should be prepared that, I mean, it just is hard. Um, building a laser is hard, and you've completely controlled environment for a laser. Right? I mean, why do we think that social policy, that I'm not saying we shouldn't do social policy, it's just that we shouldn't be quite so discouraged when it fails, because it's going to fail a lot. Um, so getting social policy right is hard, but it's even harder if you insist on using only one tool, uh, like these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't, can you see the pictures? Okay. So, thank you. Plenty of time for questions. I don't see hard questions or discussion. Helpful, <laughs> helpful suggestions. Other examples.
bypass such a problem? Such a problem. So your hunting in this case, how would it work? Uh, well, uh, it, this isn't a prescription for how to find a policy that does work. It's a prescription for figuring out whether a policy <laughs> that somebody's offering you is going to work. So how do you figure out what to do in that situation? Um, at least you know, don't try to educate the mother. Um, uh, you might try to educate, might be. Um, uh, we, we don't know that the mother-in-law doesn't have the interest of that child at heart. There's a sort of suggestion she might not because she's head of a large household. Um, but we don't know whether it's the problem that she doesn't have the interest of the child at heart or the original problem that she doesn't have the nutritional knowledge. It might be right, that um, it would help a lot to educate the mother-in-law and the guy who does the shopping and get them to cooperate. But maybe that's not possible because how do you get them to talk to each other in the right way in the family structure? You have to have, a, you know, again, a, a lot of local knowledge of exactly what family structures are like and what kinds of things are readily possible to, to do and what things are more complicated. And if that doesn't work, then it might be that the, the, the nutri educational nutritional program is just not the way to go uh, and try something very different. Is that okay? I, mean, is it, I think that was it. Nothing but obvious. Uh, uh, subject to the Lucas critique. So you did say that. See, we have the little thing because... I, I <laughs> sorry. <laughs> then I, sorry. I misspoke if I said that. It's gold standard uh, because if you want to work somewhere, now it doesn't mean that it's going to work, I mean that's somewhere in that study population, not that study population, not, not, you know, a population from the same country 10 minutes later. Sure. So, but you always have this treatment nice one that you know about and um, you can't you can't do it just by doing an RCT you have to do it by by thinking right is this is what's going on here and almost always uh, when uh, you think about rolling out uh, programs you discount right? because of knowing that uh, usually uh, a pilot program will be done by people, except for this is just filling in for other people. Uh, pilot <coughs> programs uh, tend to be done by um, the program developers. Uh, they tend to be done by people who are um, more highly trained than you might expect when it's going to be rolled out very widely. Um, but uh, so you, first thing is people, oh, I mean, it's what, why they know to sort of discount that <laughs> how much you take off 
I think it depends by looking at you know, uh, what's the pool of people you're going to hire to run the program when you need um, when you need uh, 100 teachers rather than 20. I mean, this is exactly what happened in the California class size reduction program. Um, California um, reduced class sizes uh, dramatically over the course of a year. They had dot-com money, and the schools were no good. <laughs> and um, everyone wanted smaller classes, and there had been these successful <coughs> randomized control trials in Tennessee that showed that scores went up when they reduced class sizes, um, and then they uh, rolled it out in California, and it didn't work at all, and it, it was partly this rollout phenomenon that, um, that um, when they rolled it out dramatically, uh, over the course of a year, uh, classes were cut in half, and you need twice as many teachers. So before you had, <laughs> in the trial, you had really good teachers. In California, there weren't twice as many teachers. And lots and lots of people who were unqualified were hired. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Now, how big is that effect going to be? Well, it, you know, it's not that, um, when you know about educational matters, <laughs> you're in a much better position to estimate how much it's going to matter. And you have to have additional knowledge. I mean, how much does a trained teacher versus, you know, in the UK now we're hearing that training doesn't matter for teachers. Um, if you believe that, right, you believe anything, right? But, uh, uh, okay, uh, so where's the evidence for that? Anyway, you see what I mean? It's, it's a matter of, it, it, there's no formula. Um, you, you, you have to worry about it and exploit all the knowledge you have uh, to, to try and calculate away the, uh, the effects. to do 
in it when the costly changes come and it doesn't increase the value. So there was a program about how to <coughs> incentivize people by changing the way, having insurance, house insurance that that goes with the house. <laughs> so that um, you've got, but um, what turns out is that that's um, almost certainly not going to work because people who are rich enough to live in these houses, they're not worried about the cost of the insurance. You could quadruple the cost of the insurance or 10 times or 28 times. Um, but they sure do worry about the, um, <coughs> the. They sure do worry about having builders in the house, <laughs> and they're only going to live in this house for three years, or four years, or five years, and they don't want to spend eight months having it full of dust and inconvenience. So there's a case where there's a, a policy, right? and um, there the policy wasn't actually tried out in a, in a real experiment, but there was a, a thought experiment. And the thought experiment was an economic model, and it sort of modeled itself on a randomized controlled trial. And it, look, here's how all these rational people will behave. Um, and you know, other people reflecting on it said, no, that's not how the rational people will behave, because you know, the model has these abstract, you know, here, sorry, but I get to the story. The model has in it this abstract concept utility. I mean, we, you know, what we do in the model is we assume people are going to maximize their expected utility. And, um, and in the model, right, they use money as a surrogate. I mean, they'll be eager to, you know, to, to, to save money. Uh, um, but the, the rich people living there, right, the, the, the marginal cost, right, didn't provide them, those marginal dollars weren't providing them much utility, but not having builders in their house right, provides a huge amount of utility. Well, that's just a case where um, you, you, you were not getting the right, we were exactly what I was saying about the. Um, <laughs> it, you might, it might be true that those guys do fall under this principle, maximize expected utility, but we didn't do the local investigation to understand what utility consisted in, just like educating the person who procures the food, and we didn't know that was the guy. And, yeah, sorry, long story. Okay. You asked for an example, and that's the one I, I've worked on. Right there. Okay. Sorry, I yeah, an uh, uh, observation and then a question. Um, your, how you describe these fragile uh, causal laws, I was wondering if they're really fragile or they're just illusionary. Um, whether the law is you wind up the toy and then it will go, that's an illusionary law that's false. That actually it's you must wind up the toy to a certain extent, no further and it will go. Um, and uh, I guess the, uh, the Lucas example there may be an illusionary law. It's not actually inflation, but some underlying behavior that causes the result. If that's the case, um, then I imagine this uh, the principle, you wind up the toy, is actually just shorthand for a whole range of uh, support team factors. Um, so that's my observation. The question then that arises from this is how do you differentiate um, in your scheme between the Roman law and the support teams around the law? Where, where do you draw the line between them? Or are they of the same status? <coughs> I wouldn't say, um, I mean, I agree with you because um, unless you say over what, over what range you're talking about, <laughs> as you say, how tightly you wind it up, um, the, the law, putative law is ill-formed. Um, but I, I tend to look at it, um, let's look at the Lucas critique one, um, that um, on a perfectly reasonable story, 
Um, in this population, it really is the case that um, the rise in prices is uh, lowering in uh, unemployment because people don't see that as inflation um, in the first instance. They're mistaken about it. Uh, they think it's a real rise in prices, so they're going to make more. They open, they open a business and, and hire people. Right? Um, and I think that, that it really is causal, and it's causal by, I mean, that's a true causal principle, um, but that um, it only holds so long as a certain underlying structure that supports it. Um, uh, 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 is, it holds, and what you're doing is when you use it, you're breaking the structure. Now, your thought is to take what I would put in this sort of story about the underlying structure and put it into the causal principle itself, um, and I think there are some philosophic reasons for not doing that, and I think that there are also some just simply understanding reasons for not doing it, uh, that um, if I uh, step on the throttle in my car, the car goes faster. I think that's a genuine cause. This is an exa example of Hovelmos, you know, who won the Nobel Prize long afterwards for founding econometrics. And he said, well, look, if you step on the throttle of your car, it goes faster. That's one of these fragile laws. It depends on the, it's not fundamental. It depends on the substructure. And now you could put all the whole structure of the car, you step in the throttle, and all this stuff about the structure of the car holds, then it will go faster. But all that stuff about the structure of the car is very different from step on the throttle and have petrol in the engine. So I think that I can, that, that we have, um, that it helps. <laughs> um, because after all, these are, these are just ways of conceptualizing what's going on in the world, I think it really helps to distinguish between, say, the, the toaster, which is, has a fixed structure, and as long as you don't break the structure, pressing the lever makes it go. The car that has a fixed structure, and the helping factor stepping on the throttle is petrol in the engine, of course it wouldn't go. Where, anyway, I think that it's very helpful to make that distinction that way, because um, there, um, despite Lucas and David Hendry and others, there, there is a reasonable amount of structural stability. And once you've got structural stability, you still have the problem of helping factors. Sorry, that was a long answer, but <coughs> uh, as I say, I just think it's useful to, to, to think of it in, in terms of uh, a structure giving rise to these caterus paribus causal laws and laws that will hold so long as the structure stays stable. Um, okay. So just to clarify, I've got it right. Um, the argument is that something like um, petrol for, for the, the accelerator of the car, or let's say electricity for a toaster, yeah. a different kind, a fundamentally different kind of support structure from uh, the support mechanism of the car. No. Sorry, support factor yeah, yes. from the mechanism of the car. Well, I would call that. I would call that. I could think that I could have a complete causal law that included uh, the petrol and the stepping on the throttle and all, and um, and that would always give me acceleration. Um, under a, given a certain level of the, the hill and all, but that would always give me acceleration so long as the structure stayed fixed, and that that would be uh, that's a very useful way to um, to talk because there is a lot of structural stability, and you build you know cars and you build toasters um, just to have that structural stability, um, but then and God built. Um, seats. <laughs> uh, they have a lot of structural stability, but they get the seat to sprout. It needs the helping factors of the right temperature, uh, the right amount of light, and the right um, the, uh, the the right amount of moisture. Uh, so, 
Um, that's not, it's not clear to me that you want to say that's a natural kind, that that's how God divides <coughs> the world up. I don't know what sense that makes anyway, but, but I think it's a very useful distinction for us. Um, uh, that to make the distinction between the, the substructure that supports the causal principles and the causal principles. But you're right that you need, <laughs> you need to have the structure and the support, what I call the support factors, um, and they, they both have to be there or you don't get the outcome. Yeah. of causation, so um, that you can make perfectly good sense of some concepts of causation and causal laws without uh, any idea of determinism uh, being in the offing, and you don't even need to have probabilistic laws. Um, they could just be laws of the kind that um, uh, this, uh, <coughs> this kind of uh, factor uh, tends to increase that kind of factor. Um, and there may be places where there aren't. I'm, I'm very happy with the suggestion that um, much of both nature and uh, social happenings are not governed by any kind of causal principles at all. Um, what I think is that if you want to predict what's going to happen in the situation, there better be some basis for the prediction in nature itself. And there better be some reason. If, if you think that you can intelligibly, that you can reasonably predict that if you do, um, you know, if you ask me a question, um, I'm going to answer it and not walk out of the room, right? uh, or throw something at you. You can reasonably predict that, um, and if you, and that's what we're relying on when you do social policy. Then um, I think there's got to be something about in, in nature that you're betting on that in this situation, you know, you, it means that this is a relatively reliable outcome from that. So um, there may not be, there may be many areas where there aren't anything. They don't have to be deterministic, they don't have to be probabilistic, but there may be areas where they're not causal principles at all. But those are areas where I think you can't make reliable predictions. So do you think the term of causal laws is the most apt term to use for both natural and human world and <coughs> Well, I think so because I have quite dramatically uh, odd views about natural laws. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I started my career with a book called How the Laws of Physics Lie. So uh, so I, I think it's perfectly, 
I like using it because I actually think that there are parallels between the two, and I think natural laws give out in certain... I think there's as much reason to think natural laws give out and some happenings in nature happen by hap as, as in the social realm. I'm fucking mad by my colleagues for thinking that, but I don't think there are evidence that there are natural laws that cover every happening and they're deterministic. Anyways, so I have a, maybe a, maybe it's a bad idea to call them causal principles, but I think it's important to drive home that if you want, sorry, because the, the issue is these guys are interested in using, you, you, you're interested in using what you've learned somewhere, but I mean, it's a good thing to try and use what you've learned somewhere, somewhere else. And then there's got to be something in virtue of which it's learning, I mean in virtue of which it's working over there, that you know, we'll hold over here, or, or it would be possible to learn from there to here. Um, now, maybe it isn't possible to learn from there to here, but that was the enterprise we were trying to figure out under what conditions you could. I suppose the question is the epistemic claims that it will necessarily have these outcomes if we apply it from this context to this one, or perhaps we could say that it is likely you know, percentage wise. Um, it's what? More accurate. Rather than saying it will, but what works there will work here. Well, it's more apt and, and more yeah. truthful to say that what worked there is likely to work. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, certainly. Uh, we very seldom have. Uh, take a strong view huh, that you need Roman laws, you need support factors in order to get from it works there. Just say, you know, buy that. Um, now, um, it seems to me that. Um, I'd want to hedge my bets about every one of those. I would, no matter how well done people told me the RCT was, um, I wouldn't think that I actually knew it worked there, right? <laughs> no matter um, whether it's one of those well-known laws of physics that we chuck out every hundred years, that's <laughs> um, supposed to be a Roman law, I wouldn't sort of put all my eggs in that basket either, uh, uh, nor that we managed to check off all the support factors. So in, in any case, right, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think we were in a terribly strong epistemic position, um, even if somehow you, know, you, you were in a nice case where there really were laws, they would move from I mean, How would you know that? You, you know, it's science, uh, and um, it's real life, and you really ought to be hedging your bets, because we don't, <laughs> we're just not in that, all that good a position most of the time. Yeah, I was thinking about. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, about why these quite smart MIT economists don't realize these things that you're talking about, and one of the things that that struck me was that you you contrasted this uh, randomized trial technique with instrumental variable analysis and econometrics, um, but in many ways they're very similar, aren't they? Because yes, really, what what yeah. you're doing is you're just saying we're using the method of difference to eliminate the background exactly. variables. Yeah, yeah. And, and then we're just left with this one thing that's the variable. And from that point of view, I felt that the part of your critique that, that I think is, is more powerful, because I think they would understand the support variables argument. Mm -hmm. In a way, the method of difference has not removed all the background variables in the way that they thought, because there are more other variables in Bangladesh and Tamil Nadu, and so it's not a correct application anymore. But I thought your point about um, the level of abstraction is quite telling, especially insofar as it, it implies 
is, have you actually described this policy correctly? Yeah. Yes. Because in, the, in both the IV analysis and the randomized trial, you just described the policy with a zero and a one. And in a way, you're not ever called on to describe the policy accurately. Um, so I guess my question is, how does the accurate description of the policy actually fit into Roman laws? Or is it actually a separate point to your um, It's that you need, um, you need a principle that will stretch from here to there. Um, that um, the you should you shouldn't think that the concepts you're using to describe your trial are ones that will stretch very far. Right? That uh, that's really it. You need to you need to have independent evidence, independent reason, uh, theory maybe folk theory, proper scientific theory, um, uh, understanding of how things work, you need to have, uh, from somewhere else, really have reasonable theory that tells you that you're describing the, uh, the um, result in the way it will travel. But the example I use um, is um, that um, if you do, uh, you know, we don't, we don't believe we live in Euclidean geometry anymore. <clears throat> but if you do all your experiments in Euclidean geometry, then you can really establish very firmly that you know particles are um, not subject to forces, and what causes them to uh, they move like that. But if they're on a great, if you're in a spherical geometry, they move like that. And if you're on a saddle, they'll move like that. <laughs> so um, that um, if you do all your experiments. <laughs> zillions of experiments on a Euclidean plane and you don't get the right level of abstraction I mean, conventional physics says um, particles move in straight lines or geodesics okay? but if you're doing them on a sphere you might say oh, I've learned particles always move in great circles right? and then I'd get myself a Euclidean plane and I've, I've, I've just not I haven't learned the right lesson but it's very, very hard to know what the right lesson is if there is a lesson to learn. Because I also think that there can be very, very local causal phenomena where there's nothing generalizable. But um, I'm sorry, no, I'm not answering the question. I mean, I think it's a, um, an incredibly difficult question. Um, and um, well, I will say something else that I had um, a friend of mine who, um, an economist, <laughs> uh, my age. So he said, well, one of the problems with the, the J-PAL um, that is that the people of Duflo and Kramer and Banerjee's generation, um, they, they were brought up in a wider economic environment. And they learned a lot of economics theory. Now, they don't like theory because <laughs> it's let them down so much. And so, but they really do know, did know a lot about economic theory and little economic theories, detailed economic theories and economic models. Um, and uh, so when they approach matters, <laughs> they're in a better position to think about um, what concepts to use to describe what's going on in the experiments. And <clears throat> that's something that uh, Pischke and Angers uh, argue in a paper that I cited that um, it, it, you, know, you can 
bring theory to the experiments, uh, I mean, not the deworming experiments, but certain other ones, and, 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 and that will, I mean, they don't put it that, that will fool you what concepts to use. But the, the, the new generation, right, we're all fired up and we can only learn so much, and what the new generation is learning is really, really how to do RCTs very, very well. But they're doing it in a context where they haven't learned right, the science that the middle generation has. So, um, sorry, that was not much of an answer. It's just an observation about um, that it's, it's, it takes real knowledge and learning and <coughs> trial and error. And Whenever you normally close, that's uh, fine with me. When I start getting inarticulate, when I start getting stupid, that you people here can sort of take up the conversation. Just a basic comment, really, an analogy. Um, what I thought of is um, if you look at like ecosystems, if you see your policy as a certain animal, it's going to survive in one habitat and not in the next habitat. Yeah, nice analogy. Thank you. I have a question for you. Where, why did you say it was method of difference? Me. No, the woman in front of you. I'm sorry. I, I was like, that's a great analogy. Thank you. And then I was thinking, well, I didn't want to uh, end up without finding out because um, when I say these are all just Mill's method of difference studies, people get really cross with me. <laughs> but that's what you said. <laughs> well, I'm probably not using it correctly. No, you were. Uh, not really an econometrician, but but just. The, the idea that you don't have to put in a control variable yeah. if, if you've um, made your study um, on the on two settings where you have the same. Yes, but I just wondered why you, where you got the term from. Are you a philosopher? Uh, no, no. I just got it from being old. <laughs> you know, well, I, I, I say, if you, I mean, it's interesting because if you look at the standard rankings for evidence-based social policy uh, by um, grade or something <laughs> like that, um, they give rankings to study designs according to um, their claim about how well the study design will ensure the outcome and meta-analyses and systematic reviews of RCTs get a top rating and certain kinds of observational studies with low probability of bias get a lower one, you know, etc. So um, what's always fascinated me is every single method in most of those charts is a method of difference mm -hmm. study. And the things that I was brought up with, like process tracing, derivation from theory, econometric methods, um, none of them are anywhere in the list. I mean, they're not even all, you know, <laughs> they don't really come out as low-ranked. I mean, they're just not there. So um, I'm just glad somebody else has noticed that their method of difference study, I mean, they really <laughs> confine themselves to method of difference. Yeah. Nancy, just something <coughs> about the way you've been talking about RCTs and one of the, one of the themes about the abstraction theme in terms of how you describe such treatment in the RCT. And I take your point through your phrasing in some sense to say that you need good theory in order to have an RCT tell you something which you can then stretch to a certain distance depending on how good that theory is. So it just strikes me that there's a problem with the name of evidence-based policy because you know it's evidence-based. So it, it presupposes that you know there's a fundamentalism there, i.e. that we can use evidence as the basis for what we do. Oh. And of course, what you're saying is that RCTs are theory-based. 
So yes. you're saying that the very method used to create the evidence basis is in an internal theory based. And of course, that theory you're trying to rely on evidence. So we go in circles. And this is a kind of standard philosophical point that you know, we, don't, you know, say, we don't really have a, you know, a very certain ground on which to stand. And I think one of the problems with that is it's very hard to get that conclusion across in a policy context where everyone is trying to, in some sense, stop asking questions and get to the answer and yes. the action. So I think yes. there's a huge political context here which makes this, this kind of conclusion very hard for other people to swallow. So it's an observation, but I think it's, it, it, it's a, well, I think it's kind of follows on point. Yes, well, that's why I wish we could convince your bosses and the media and the public that it's probably okay to try social policies with the idea that they may work and they may not. Uh, rather than <laughs> we know that they may well we know that they're not going to work right that you're quite lucky if it, if it works um, you know even though you've done your damnedest and um, and um, yeah, I, mean, I guess the thing is that if you don't blame people for it not working they're likely to just put in place the policies that are good for their friends but um, it, it does seem to me that the, that it's that it's important to to get out of you know, give me the answer, and we don't like scientists because <coughs> science always tells me it's not certain. Well, that's right, and that's life, and it's pseudo-rational to pretend that, um, you know, somebody else has got the answer, or that there's an answer when there isn't. Anyway, you know, oddly, that's... Just to conclude, but a quick question. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of philosophers stepping forward, um, are they stepping forward to be experts in policy debates, or... Would you like to see philosophers stepping forward and giving general education to the people that set policy like you have done today? Well, I think that it's difficult to set up conversations between philosophers and anybody else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I worked for uh, I, I worked for years with uh, now across on and off you know, intermittently with Angus Deaton, and um, who's this, uh, 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 an economist. Uh, who um, is worried about RCTs, and, and he always says to me, why don't you write so that we economists can understand you? And that's after I've really, really worked hard to write so that economists can understand me. So I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's not just the fact that um, you know, the policy people are really busy and they don't even believe in science, and let alone philosophy, um, it, uh, that it's also the case that it's very, very difficult to find um, a way to communicate across disciplinary boundaries and when you're going all the way from being um, in philosophy to uh, practical policy it's not surprising that it's difficult I don't have any solution to how, how to bridge it but I think that it's not a surprise that, um, that we don't have enough of it okay, okay. Oh, uh, thank you